Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Christopher Mintz, a well-known Wall Street Journal columnist that I am pretty sure many of our listeners have been following. If not, go and pick up your copy and do it right now and follow his Twitter account, M-I-M-S, because it's full of fun. And congratulations on your new book arriving today. And welcome to the show, Christopher. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, so we have been reading your articles for quite a while now. That was before you embarked on the journey of, of writing. And I remember you took off from social media for a bit for your tour to write the book. But it wasn't until recently that I realized you have a degree in neuroscience and behavioral biology. How did you get started on your writing journey on technology? That seems a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I began as a science writer, um, you know, because science was what I knew. And, uh, but I had always wanted to be a writer. You know, I, I spent some years in the lab, and that was enough to teach me that I did not want to pursue that. I didn't really have the, you have to have a very specific personality. Um, you know, biology is so hard. It is the hardest thing in the world. Um, so I, you know, mad respect for all of the molecular biologists out there uh, and, and other neuroscientists who have to work with, you know, the world's messiest uh, computer-like devices. So, you know, I just, I had this passion for writing. So I started writing. And then early in my career, I was at places like Scientific American. And there was just this real need for people who had an appreciation and some understanding of technology to write about it. There just was this kind of almost insatiable demand because the, a lot of the older writers weren't as familiar. I mean, this, these were the days when like Walt Mossberger was, you know, writing about personal tech in the pages of the Wall Street Journal or David Pogue at the New York Times. And everybody was like, and you needed somebody to be your guide to this world. Um, and of course, now it's just the water that we swim in. Uh, but that was really how I kind of made that lateral shift into technology. It just it touches on so many things. Um, it just it became a lens for me to to write about anything. And that's how I ended up writing about supply chains was I was actually interested in robotics. And it just turned out that nothing is automating faster right now than supply chains and specifically warehouses. And I, you know, one day I was standing in the, the, the most automated facility I've ever been in in my life, which was a uh, fully automated grocery warehouse in the suburbs of London run by Ocado. And it just, it totally blew my mind. You know, there was like one person in this whole warehouse and it was all robots doing everything. And uh, I just wanted to know more. And that's how that journey started. So let's let's dive into that then. Uh, for the listeners that have not gotten your book yet, uh, perhaps due to a supply chain issue, uh, can you tell us a bit more? You know, beyond the the robots in that in that one facility in that one warehouse, about what you wanted to write about when you started, and what were some of your initial assumptions about the supply chain uh, world? Yeah, I mean, based on that, of course, my assumptions were that there was a lot of technology that Amazon's facilities were fully automated. Um, you know, but what I quickly discovered was it's like manufacturing in that, or, you know, like building cloud services or, or creating software. It's just this incredibly deeply human activity. 
And the really sort of interesting thing is not the question that people always ask of robotics automation, which is, you know, is it going to take my job? It's how's it going to change my life? How's it going to change my job? How's it going to change the things that I'm asked to do? Um, and so, you know, discovering that, for example, Amazon warehouse workers, that it was, you know, this very physical job, but that you couldn't understand the circumstances under which these folks worked without talking to the executives and the software developers and the other engineers who had created the systems that needed those humans and that leveraged their labor. And then that also kind of led me down a bunch of rabbit holes into the history of these kinds of things, because, you know, so much of like anything, so much of what we think of as being new now, we're just kind of re re fighting old battles over <laughs> technology versus humans and how they can work together. And it just ended up being this kind of epic personal journey through technology and labor and kind of, you know, the dignity of work. And, you know, all of these kind of core questions about economics and where does all our stuff come from and productivity and, you know, are we more productive than ever or is that not happening? And is that something we should be concerned about? I can't agree more. When you talk about the dignity of work, right? It reminds me a lot when we talk about future of work. It sounds so romantic. It sounds so nice. We sell them on flexibility of where you work, when you work, etc. But if you peel back the onions and you look underneath, who are the ones who are actually profiting from this quote unquote future of work? Certainly not the laborers who are delivering your, you know, food for, for takeout delivery is not the people who are driving the Ubers and whatnot. It's actually the tech layer in the middle, a lot of sort that creating the ability to facilitate between the people who provide the service to, you know, themselves, essentially. And we've seen, we started seeing some of the backlash um, from New York City, for example, that are capping the commissions um, of how much these companies can profit from. So in relation to that, there's something in, in the chapter, the principle of modern work that, that resonates and it stuck with me. Because in there you wrote, every day, more and more of what we do, how we consume, even how we think has become part of the factory system. And it makes me feel like we are in this little hamster wheel, right? Every single day you're on social media, you're on, you know, whatever it is, you're consuming, you're part of this big machine that constantly urges you and nudges you to keep going and going, but to what end? So if you have the chance to go back to the past, you know, Christopher, before you started writing um, or before you even, you know, started in Scientific America, I don't know, 50 years back or what have you, what would you tell people what's arriving today? And knowing what you knew now, what would they need to change or be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to be aware of is that it is this kind of remarkably uh, tightly coupled loop of like advertising to generate demand, which is sort of fed through predictive analytics to determine, you know, what is going to be manufactured and where and when and delivered to you. I mean, that's the sort of ecosystem of e-commerce. Um, and that's why uh, 
for you know at the at the front of that kind of sales funnel right is amazon but also don't forget facebook i mean that's one reason why no matter what scandals arise with facebook advertisers never abandon facebook because nobody can target ads the way that facebook allows you to and it's not just you know ads on facebook obviously it's their whole network and that has led to countless small businesses which find customers whom they wouldn't otherwise um so i think it's it is important to be aware of how much kind of demand generation happens and and so-called you know mimetic desire if you've read the book wanting which i recommend it's a great book by one of your um sort of colleagues in in tech and in startups and you know he really goes into you know, part of the reason that we want the things that we want is that humans are incredible mimics. And we're just sort of, instead of saying, what do I really want? We're just kind of copying what the definition of success or, or material wealth is for others. Um, and then the result of that, of course, is, was the subject of the book, which is just this enormous supply chain where even the smallest object, you know, it's meant to look convenient to us that you click on a button one click shopping it arrives the same day or, to, or the next day. But of course, even the smallest, most mundane object like, you know, oh, I need another charging cable for my phone actually went on a 14,000 mile journey, which took a minimum of two months and hundreds of people were involved either conveying it or actually touching the object, transferring it uh, between these islands of automation. And it's, it's, it's when you fully appreciate it and it just, it's, it's this almost incomprehensibly long and complicated journey. And yet we've made it so efficient that in the before times, before the pandemic, shipping a large screen TV from a port in China to the port of LA costs $2. Of course, that's because it's many hundreds of them are stuffed into a shipping container. Now, of course, it's like 10 times that, but that's still only 20 bucks. You know, it's bad for you if you're selling low margin goods. But um, yeah, it's it, it, there's so much sort of technology and also kind of information technology, which has gone into organizing the human labor and the robotic labor in order to make that possible. Yeah, the, the amazing sort of rise of the container ship uh, cost, you know, from $2,500 to ten to $12,000 for shipping, you know, a single one of those containers uh, just during the last 18 months. The, the, the book um, reminds me of a couple of my favorite reads over the last, you know, couple decades and one just from not too long ago. The first is Why We Buy by Paco Underhill, which is this amazing book about the data and the science behind the way that stores are set up and the way that shelves are set up and the way that we buy things and how businesses are learning from our behavior in order to sell more. Um, and that's uh, coupled with this other book by Rose George called 90% of Everything, uh, which you actually refer to in the book and you have a chapter about 100% of everything. Now, Rose traveled the oceans on these massive container ships and did her research about sort of the environmental impact and the impact on the people that are actually working on these ships that sometimes, you know, they are on these ships for two, three years at a time and how it impacts their lives. And when, you know, 
we we see these things arriving every other day at people's houses and we don't really unravel the stuff behind it in that supply chain the the economy that we've created this modern economy is you know it has a lot of more impact than than we are giving any sort of weight to now i'm wondering in terms of the the book and and how you dug into it did you you know were were you on a ship uh, you, you do detail some of your travels. If you could talk about that, I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning like this nomad land, you know, kind, kind of Chris going in undercover as a worker at Amazon's <laughs> warehouses or something. But tell us about some of the, the digging in. You, you alluded to it, but, but get into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I spent time, you know, at, at uh, the Port of LA, Long Beach in the US and um, the Kaimap terminal, Kaimap port in Vietnam and elsewhere in the kind of shipping and manufacturing infrastructure there. I spent time riding along with a long haul trucker, uh, you know, sitting in truck stops with small trucking company owners and talking to them about their woes. I spent a lot of time interviewing Amazon warehouse workers, um, you know, both in Amazon facilities and outside of them at meetings where they were trying to kind of organize um, and in other contexts. Um, you know, and then I went into some other kind of obscure facilities, which also just blew my mind because of how automated they were, but also the, the humans who were left there with the pace at which they had to work. Um, like there's this whole part of the supply chain called the middle mile, which you never hear anything about, you know, and I went to like a FedEx middle mile sortation center smack in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, it's just, imagine just the roar of every conveyor going at full speed and just packages of every description just shooting by. And the guy who designed it all like turns to me and he's like, yeah, he's like, this used to be peak volume for us. Now it's just every day because that's the reality we live in now. And he's like, and the holidays are coming and that's gonna be peak on top of peak. And like, we'll see how that goes. So um, whenever possible, I went to every single one of these places and I spent a lot of time with these folks, just really li listening and digging in. I mean, the one thing that's kind of impossible to do now is to get on a container ship. It's There's a few limited circumstances in which you can still do it, but they've basically, for a bunch of reasons, made that almost impossible now. So Rose George's excellent 90% of everything is gonna be probably the definitive book on that for the foreseeable future. Um, but, you know, for to fill in that part of the book, like I spent a lot of time talking to uh, this uh, sailor, this third mate, Jeff Sang, who has these amazing videos on uh, YouTube where he does these time lapses of his trans-Pacific voyages, you know, about, you know, what what is the nitty gritty? What is the day to day of being a sailor? Um, and what's the contrast, of course, between that and the way that it used to be? Um, so it's it's it part of what really blew my mind about doing all this research was just the variety of professions involved. I mean, it's, it's really, I really do think this is the, other than like building a super collider or like researching nuclear fusion, like getting a package to you is the most complicated human endeavor there is period. I, I need to remind my kids that because yesterday my son was 
looking for something. He was trying to place an order. And um, and then afterwards, he's like, I cannot believe it's going to take until December to get here. <laughs> like, why can it not be here tomorrow? I'm like, not everything can arrive at the same day or next day. Um, it, it's just changed so much, hasn't it? Like, this is not the type of life that we were used to even growing up. As kids, you don't order anything online. I mean, that did not exist. Yeah, I remember going yeah. to the mall. <laughs> oh, God, yes, the mall. The mall The mall was the place to hang out. Gosh, I mean, come on. What else would you go, right? Going to the movie theater and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all changed. Um, I remember, actually, when I was a little growing up, I would hear, um, I don't know the English name of, of, of these people, but um, there's a profession, actually, of people in, in Hong Kong where they would be selling stuff on the streets, but they will be yelling out so loud, you can hear them inside the house. And the idea is that you can hear this guy's coming and then you'll go off to the street and see what he has to sell. Obviously, that does not exist anymore. Um, but it, it's just, you know, different ways of living, I guess, um, different culture, different work environment. So speaking of in this book that you have arriving today, you devoted one full chapter on Bezosism. You actually, um, I remember you had an extract of that on Wall Street Journal recently as well. And you talked about the culture and the work environment that's unique to Amazon. And you talked about the more than a thousand less automated facilities that are similar to more traditional warehouses and workers who are constantly in danger of losing their jobs, so to speak. Um, and the speed of which they are required to work and all that. Do you think consumers will eventually vote with their wallet and ask and demand better behavior from the companies they're buying from? Or will we see more and more companies trying to be more like Amazon? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're going to see more companies trying to be more like Amazon. In fact, I, I mean, I don't just think that. Like, that's what my reporting indicates. Like, if you listen to uh the other day i was listening to a podcast where you know some business development person for locus robotics was talking about when amazon bought kiva and took it off the market right because before then they had been serving like staples and walgreens and all these other firms and um and how it just left this huge vacuum where people were like well where are we going to get our robotic you know fulfillment uh, technology anymore. And that's why you had like Six River, of course, which got bought by um, Shopify and uh, Locus Robotics and others. I think that they're all moving toward um, making these warehouses function more and more like Amazon's. And what I mean by that is the things that the only the human can do they want to maximize the rate at which the human can do that. And so the things that humans are good at is like, we have this incredible dexterity and great stereoscopic vision and depth perception. And we can do what no robotic arm can do, right? Which is we can pluck exactly the right object off of a shelf and put it in a bin and send it on its way. Everything else you can automate, except for that one incredibly mind bendingly difficult task. Um, and when I was listening to this business development person for Locus Robotics talk about how they were going to optimize warehouses, they were like, oh, you know, in a current warehouse, this person has to walk all over the warehouse and they're walking, you know, 12, 15 miles a day, which, of course, on a concrete floor, that's not optimal either. You don't want that. 
But what they're talking about doing is you put the person in the middle and it's almost like they're like in the matrix pod or something. And there's so many robots bringing them shelves and taking things away. And he's like, we can get, you know, these people were doing 40 picks an hour when they were walking around, but we can get that up to like 160 or 200. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, that's more picks per hour than an Amazon worker is asked to do with those robotic shelves on the um, automatic driving units. I was like, that's crazy. Like, that is just a recipe for uh, musculoskeletal disorders and repetitive stress injuries. I don't care how healthy you are. I don't care if you're like 20. Um, so I think that it's going to move more and more in that direction. And, 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 you know, part of the reason this automation happens is that there's a labor crunch, but the funny thing about labor crunches is they're self-fulfilling prophecies. If you make the working conditions impossible for most people or just unacceptable or demoralizing, people won't stay in your field and then you don't have enough workers. And then you're like, we need to automate more. And it's like, you could, or you could take it in a slightly different direction and try to reduce turnover. So I do wonder if at some point folks are going to have to change working conditions just to keep people on the job longer. Amazon is already moving in that direction. Since I finished research for the book, they announced like four or five new initiatives to make their work environment more humane, less likely to injure people. Um, you know, and look, they do business with the lead pipe sensibility. They're not doing that just for the good press. I think they're doing it because they need to reduce turnover. Yeah, I, I remember reading somewhere that they said if they don't make a change, they will run out of workers to hire um, in the United States just because they need so many and the turnover is so high. And and another thing I, I was a little worried about, that was another book that was written by a New York Times reporter a couple of years ago that talked about how a lot of a lot of people now they have transient jobs going into their 50s and beyond because of various reasons they got laid off and they couldn't find another job and what have you. And a lot of these workers, they're employed with Amazon in these factories because A, they, they have benefits, they pay, but it's also, as you say, really, really demanding conditions and high injury rates. So if that is a part of the demographics that Amazon will be needing or other companies in the future, I would assume they would actually need to do something to make sure that they don't injure their own people because that is the source of productivity, um, as you say. So it is fascinating to watch in a way. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, that's when, when workers try to organize at Amazon facilities, in my experience, they are almost never demanding higher wages. They're demanding better working conditions. So I think that's very telling. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the whole industry is really uh, going to get to a point where they're going to have to manage that trade-off, you know, as other companies that are mature in their various industries have. I mean, the very last chapter of the book, I spent time with um, Jenny Rosado, who's a very experienced UPS driver. And of course, you know, UPS is a very different company, right? Because it's over 100 years old. They belong to the Teamsters Union. Um, so they have a lot of control over the conditions of their work. They're still working all out. I mean, they 
are going like mad. The difference is that like they're all trained in terms of safety and because the company's liable and is paying their health insurance, they don't want them to get injured, right? They're like, we want you to work as fast as you can without getting into an accident or becoming disabled. So it's a different balance of incentives, right? Well, and, and it's interesting because, you know, there's what 11% of this country belongs to a labor union. And, and at one point it was close to maybe 50% uh, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, so, you know, when we, we think about the supply chain, though, and we think about how unions have really shaped labor in this country, especially, that's still not the case around the world. And, you know, we... We see in the book, you talk about, you know, how the supply chain is sort of shifting around in places like Vietnam and other you know, sort of jurisdictions across Asia and likely into Africa down the road are really going to be, you know, the center of manufacturing, um, possibly in, in coordination with this global, you know, system that we have. Um, that's one of the things I really like about how you put the book together. And I, and I don't do this comparison very often, but one of my favorite historians is James Burke. Uh, who did this amazing sort of set of shows called Connections on the BBC. And he would do things like uh, showing how sort of disparate innovations across history uh, got us to where we are today. You go from the Gutenberg press to uh, the microprocessor and refrigerators, and all of a sudden we're on the moon. Uh, so and you've done a little bit of that uh, in, in your book here, and I really like that you sort of pull these threads across time to show where things are headed. So when you were doing this research and writing this, alongside your interest in technology and sort of your background in biology, has this really changed your views about other platforms, you know, from Facebook and Apple and not just supply chains, but, you know, what, what changed you in the process of writing this book and, and what, what are you going to take with that going forward? I mean, yeah, I, th I think a lot of what it, the ways that it changed me were, that I have, I think, a broader definition of what technology is. Like, I really, truly believe now that technology includes the systems that we use to manage ourselves. Like, if you want to talk about software development, Agile is a technology. It doesn't matter that the only place it runs is, like, in our heads and in a spreadsheet or something. Like, it's, it's a tool. It's a technology, right? I mean, a computer doesn't have to be a, full, uh, a physical object. Like, when Turing conceived of the computer, it was a completely abstract object. He's like, imagine a paper tape, blah, blah, blah. So just because something doesn't have a physical instantiation doesn't mean that it's not a technology. And also, it just really gave me this deep, deep, deep appreciation for, you know, just the hard problems that remain. Um, and that and that are kind of solved by kind of nameless engineers every day. Like, we don't think about you know, uh, the way that like a, a naval engineer has slowly incrementally gotten us to the point where like a modern container ship is this gigantic miracle of engineering, which embodies like every mistake anybody's ever made every time they lost a ship or containers went overboard. And that is why it can, you can have something that can carry 10,000 containers and has a crew of 20 you know, when I was talking to Jeff, the third mate on these transoceanic uh, trips, I was like, what do you do in the morning? He's like, well, first thing I do is 
I make sure all the machines are working. He's like, and then I just look out at the ocean and I was like, so it's really just a giant robot and you are there because shit happens and emergencies occur and you have to make, you know, dynamic decisions. And um, yeah, I, th I think that that it, it, it kind of, in a way, it by giving me sort of a broader appreciation, it, it made me excited about the number of different places in our material civilization where there's still so much room for improvement and optimization and new technology and just like material science and all that really basic stuff that at the end of the day creates um, the, the sort of bubbles that before I was writing about, you know, where like new software companies pop up overnight and then suddenly they're worth a billion dollars. I mean, that doesn't exist unless you've built the physical infrastructure of the internet in the first place. Um, so in that way, I think that, I think maybe a little bit more like, um, maybe the way like Elon Musk or somebody thinks where all of his other <laughs> stuff aside, which I don't have anything in common with, but like just being somebody who's, who's like, I'm going to think about first principles and that's why I'm going to go do like a rocket company or I'm going to capitalize on the falling price of batteries to like make an electric vehicle company. There are more of those out there that have yet to be built or discovered. Um, as long as people I think are willing to tackle those hard problems, because of course the supply chain, as we see now is just full of hard problems. <laughs>that is indeed a little bit of a mess um i don't think i've ever asked you this how did you come up with the title of the book arriving today i can't take credit for it so my editor was like i was thinking and i got an amazon alert <laughs> okay because so. that 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 tripped me um when you first thought you know you, your book is coming out is going to be arriving today i'm like wait what the book is here today what was going on and then it took me a few seconds to realize that was the title of the book. Um, if there's one thing you would want people to remember from your book, what would that be? Um, I think the one thing that I would like them to take away from it is that um, we have created for ourselves and for others um, these vast systems of kind of monitoring how work is done and managing people with algorithms. And, you know, whenever people want to start to dive into political philosophy and they're like, well, let's talk about the origins of capitalism or let's talk about whether socialism is gonna work. The thing that I wish that they would also talk about is the original sort of philosophy of organizing work, which has just become the water we swim in now, which is Taylorism, which in the modern day I renamed Bezosism because 70% of America's workers don't have like a secure salaried job. So that means that they're, you know, they're, they could be bouncing between things like healthcare to fast food to whatever, to whatever. It means the majority of Americans are being managed in some way often by an algorithm, or I don't know the actual figure, let's say half. And I think that that is the root of so much of what can be good or 
or bad about modern work. And it's something that we should all kind of hopefully talk about more. I like that. I agree. And before we let you go, Christopher, where can people find this book and where can they find you? <laughs> well, um, your nearest bookstore <laughs> or of course, Amazon. <laughs> um, yeah. Arriving today, just Google arriving today, Mims, you'll find it. Um, and I'm on Twitter and, uh, that ends up being kind of just my home on the internet. Yeah. We're also on the paper. So thank you so much, Christopher, for joining us today. It's been a delight and give us much food for thought. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week.